This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And welcome to episode 37 of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. And now for a word. Welcome to easily the most experimental episode of Babylon 5 thus far. If you had forgotten what 90s television was like, even in the 23rd century, this is the episode for you. Um, Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Shannon and Erica, before we get into the meat of this thing, this is a really weird episode, and I was wondering, um, when you first saw the story, before we even get into whether the story works or not, when you first saw it and when you came to it today, what did you think of it? Because it's just so damn weird. (laughs) Uh, Well, for me, when I first came to it, I was just... Uh, either in college or just I think it was just out of college and I had actually gone to school for video production so the whole idea of the the news you know documentary type thing it, it played to my strengths it was right in my wheelhouse so I really liked that about it um, the very first time that I saw it it was just like this is a Babylon 5 episode that's made for me plus it had Kim Zimmer from The Guiding Light which <laughs> I wasn't a huge fan of but I watched enough of to know who Kim Zimmer was um, so yeah first at first blush I loved it and actually I am the kind of viewer that has real trouble letting go of first impressions so I kind of just re-experienced the same the same thing on a maybe slightly lesser scale every time I rewatch this episode. So I, I have trouble being objective about it. I'm, I'm, I have to be honest. You know, I remember from the first time that I watched it, I remember Shannon sitting bolt upright and going, that's Kim Zimmer. That's Kim Zimmer. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, that distracted me mightily for much of the episode the first time mm-hmm. I saw it. So Yep. Um, watching it now was a welcome refresher because it's been several years since I rewatched the series to be able to pay attention to the story rather than the fact that one of my mother's absolute favorite actresses from her favorite soap opera was on this other show. When I first saw it, I immediately thought of uh, MASH um, because I was a big MASH fan when I was a kid. And there are three episodes, two of them um, fake newsreel um, stories, and one of them literally a point of view camera shot of a from a soldier um, that's just been airlifted to the uh, hospital. This episode reminds me of those so much. It's a really neat. It's a really neat trick, and it's not the sort of thing that I would want to do all the time. It. Um, there was this fascination uh, a few years ago with found footage horror films like Blair Witch and things like that. And this is kind of sort of in that sort of genre. And I wouldn't want too much of this. But at this point now, in a year and a half into the run of Babylon 5, it feels like a well-timed uh, little experiment. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, it's certainly it's it's a good gateway episode into for anybody who um, has been hearing about Babylon Five and suddenly decided, you know, this, you know, what is this show about? Uh, it, it's a perfect stepping on point because it recaps um, the current situation and fills in a few details on past continuity uh, and uh, references them enough um, so that the person feels like that you, you do get a feel for the characters in the show and generally what's going on. Yeah, and and it introduce it literally introduces you to the characters with their names on screen. So so mm-hmm. you're right; it's good introduction. Well, actually, I was going to wait until later into the into the podcast when we got into the conversation. But let's explore that a little bit. Is this a good? You know nothing of Babylon Five. Here you go. Take and now forward. In our Doctor Who fandom, we have all of these arguments over what the best gateway episode for Doctor Who is. And a lot of people say Blink. And a lot of people say, no, Blink is too atypical. Is an, and now forward too atypical? Um, I, I think when you're talking about a, an arc-based show like Babylon 5, 
the the atypicalness really matters a lot less. I mean, if you're just showing it to somebody to show them what Babylon 5 is like, yeah, this is a terrible episode for that. But if you are showing it to them because you think they might want to jump on at this point in the series and continue watching, I think you could do do a lot worse than this one because like like Shannon said, there are a lot of introductory things, but that's really only for somebody who's interested in you know, has there's there's any chance at all that they're going to stick around and watch some more episodes? Yeah, again, if this is something to if, if this is not something to show somebody as a representative episode of Babylon Five, it's just a, a possible starting point, I think. Yeah, it's definitely not representative, but it gives a surprisingly complete view of uh, most of our main characters, the ones that we we get on screen. We we get the fact that the Vorlons don't talk to anybody. Uh, we get uh, Jakar and Delenn and Malari, um, both sort of the surface caricature of them that the program is trying to present. And we manage to get some depth to most of them as well. Uh, we definitely get a good feel for the command staff for Sheridan and Ivanova and what they have to do from day to day. So um, it it doesn't take very long for each person, but it manages to give a surprisingly in-depth picture of most of our main players. Well, before we go, go any further, let's uh, do our boilerplate bits of the episode and talk about what you need to know. If this is your first episode of Babylon 5, here's what you need to know. Okay, then. Now then, <laughs> um, because, yeah, almost literally nothing. Uh, the documentary style Every bit of backstory you possibly could need for Babylon 5 is embedded in this sucker. It really does stand alone mightily well in that regard. But here's your synopsis. In this episode, ISN, Interstellar Network News, comes to Babylon 5 to shoot a documentary about the station. As it happens, Narn and Centauri tensions are continuing to escalate. The Centauri have begun conducting weapons transfers, including those of weapons of mass destruction, outside the station. The Narn object, and shooting has begun. Sheridan attempts to de-escalate the conflict, but the back-and-forth ultimatums lead... Ultimata? Sorry. (laughs) Having a grammar moment here. Anyway, the back-and-forth ultimata lead to first a Centauri warship attempting to blockade Babylon 5, and then, once the Centauri have backed down, a Narn warship arrives and the vessels destroy each other. Meanwhile, the interview footage reveals that, one, Earth politicians are wary of getting involved in the conflict and increasingly skeptical of B-5's value, two, Earth media is not above sensationalizing a story, even in the 23rd century, Three, Delenn is suffering from self-doubt and a lack of media savvy. Four, Londo is suggesting that Earth's interests lie in opposing the Narn. And five, Captain Sheridan still believes in Babylon 5's vision of creating the peace. And I quote, When you stumble a lot, you start looking at your feet. We have to make people lift their eyes back to the horizon. Side note, one of my favorite speeches in the show. Oh, and six... The Psycor is your friend. Trust the core. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. Stephen Stephen uh, was like, what about- was that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lovely. I was, yeah, we, we, we will get to our control group's reaction to a certain amount of pseudo subliminal <laughs> broadcasting there, but let's start off uh, real quick with the elephant in the room. We've talked before a lot on this podcast about the state of the video transfer for the Babylon 5 DVDs and digital downloads, which is not great Um, for a variety of reasons. um, The film transfers uh, are not the best. Some of the film has deteriorated, had deteriorated before they went into uh, DVD mastering. And they never remastered the video effects. So anytime you've got CGI, anytime you've got compositing, you do not get that good film resolution. You get a transfer from PAL video, as uh, Mojo uh, Leibowitz told us on a previous Extra episode, and it's in bad resolution. This episode is particularly painful because there's so much video compositing. All of the lower third graphics in so many shots means that you get this low res image 
And worse, because you've got a 4-3 image that's been expanded and sliced off the top and bottom to uh, create a widescreen image, that means whenever you've got one of these lower third graphics on the bottom of the screen, our characters who are talking to the camera, their heads are completely cut off at the top. And you watch during this during this DVD transfer, this as soon as the graphics disappear from the bottom of the screen, the image slowly creeps down so that you can get the tops of the characters' heads back into the frame. For those of you who have never seen Babylon 5 before, we apologize. Yes. This is an episode that almost begs for us to f- go back into our cardboard boxes and find our own our old off-air tapings of mm-hmm. the show to to watch it as it really was transmitted. Although I have to point out that even on the um some of the uh the transmitted ones, they I can't remember what channel it was that I was watching it on, but they were showing wide sc- the widescreen versions, I believe, because this was before I'm remembering noticing this right. before I got the DVDs. That, I think that was Sci-Fi Channel for the most part. Yes, yes, that makes sense. And and I remember seeing that and I actually do remember this episode in particular because of, you know, every time somebody's name comes up on the screen, it's like, oh, it's very important to have their name, which it is not important to have their forehead or the top of their head. It was just it was it was really frustrating watching it that way. And at the time, I had no idea why that was. I was just really upset. So at least I know now why. Mm -hmm. All right, everybody, write Warner Brothers, tell them to remaster these things. (laughs) It would be fantastic. I don't know that it's actually possible. I don't know that all the film still exists. Some of it, I hear, was literally eaten by rats. Oh, my gosh. Well, we need we need a reconstruction team, just like Doctor Who has this fantastic reconstruction team. We, we need that for Babylon 5 as well. Indeed. We may have to animate some of the episodes, but it'll be okay, everybody. <laughs> oh, uh, what's the name of the guy? What's the name of the guy who... Uh, was so involved in the in beef and in Doctor Who fandom, um, Ian Levine. Ian Levine, mm-hmm. yeah, Ian Levine. He reconstructed Shada and some other Doctor Who episodes. We have a mission for you. Come away from the Bab- <laughs> Come away from Doctor Who fan. Come to Babylon Five. Maybe <laughs> help us. Maybe that's not that a great idea, but you know. <laughs> Anyway, so that's a lot about video image quality, but let's get the big question out of the way. Did this experiment work? It was directed by Mario DeLeo, who who has yet to be given in Babylon 5 a conventional episode. He had horror in the long dark, X-File-ishness in All All Alone in the Night, humor in Acts of Sacrifice, and now faux documentary. How good was this episode as an episode of Babylon 5? I have already, uh, you know, declared my bias that that the first time I saw it, it was it was hitting me in the feels, so to speak. So I I quite liked it. And I I I think that it works. Um, I I love the idea of it. Uh, Stephen was not quite on the same page. He 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 thought it was okay, but he found it kind of tough to watch for the first time from this perspective because it, it shows kind of how news journalism is, is so different now than it was at the time. I mean, at the time that kind of ran like you know your the twenty twenty or sixty minute sort of sort of story mm-hmm. in a way. And nowadays, he he Stephen couldn't help thinking about um, faux documentary shows like The Office, which are done in a very different style. And he you know he he found himself wanting it to be done more in that style so that it would be a little bit more contemporary with now. So he had, mm-hmm. he had trouble sort of shifting his head um, back into, back into that, uh, that thing. And he also thought that it was shot very, you know, yeah, it's different, but it's very similar in the way that it's shot to a normal episode of Babylon five. The lighting is the same. The camera angles are for the most part, pretty much the same. It's moving a little bit more, but there weren't stark enough differences. Um, he thought it should have maybe deviated more from looking like that gone, full on to actually to looking like an actual news report um that it would have been you know interesting to 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 shift it even farther away but i mean with budget constraints i guess that might have been a a difficult thing to do so i'm still happy with it but i have my i have my fuzzy feels from many years ago so i'm clouded um i think for the most part the episode works it's not quite 
the same as a typical Babylon 5 episode, but there's still enough of the continuity going on. If you've been watching for a while, we get our first, like, really detailed update of the Narn Centauri conflict and what's going on there. We get um, a fairly big chunk of information on what is going on on Earth and what um, a lot of people on Earth are, what their opinions are, what their views are of Babylon 5 and its work, given uh, the Clark regime. And we start to get some real major hints about what kinds of things uh, that the Clark presidency is trying to do there. So um, it, it works for me for advancing the story. It more or less works as far as um, the idea of it being a journalist running around and trying to get her story. Um, I, I kind of agree that it it looks more, a lot of things look more like a B5 episode than a news report. I can definitely see that opinion. Yeah, I got the sense that Mario DeLeo um, has never had a whole lot of experience really closely watching or paying attention to how news was produced, e- even at the time, because... There are bits like uh, it, it's kind of random how whether an interview subject is looking to an off-screen interviewer or looking directly into camera, like the way uh, the Senator Quantrell is doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that this is kind of neat um, structurally, and I really like this episode. I think it's really done well, but it does feel dated to me. Um, the, the opening ISN graphics, uh, look amateurish. Uh, I think they even looked amateurish at the time. And yeah, news gathering, news production is totally different today than it was 20 years ago when this episode was made. I think that that, those are things to just sort of get past. Uh, but on balance, I think that this is a fantastic story. And I had forgotten, just like everybody remembers the Ivanova dance and acts of sacrifice and doesn't remember the Narn Centauri conflict. This is a heavy Narn Centauri episode, and you mm-hmm. forget that because of um, Kim Zimmer mm-hmm. and cameramen and mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast are in the eye <laughs> of the beholder, which I is just so my... trite, and which is so trite, and it's so 1990s Fox News. Mm-hmm. Um. And yet, you know, and it's still, it's actually believable in that sort of way. But that sort of stuff overpowers the drama of this story uh, in yeah. in casual memory. Yeah, it's kind of a shame because when looking through my notes, all the different things I jotted down, we get a huge lump of Narn Centauri. We get a huge lump of the building um, issues around Earth and the Clark presidency. And we get a ton of character stuff going on here. And it's all great storytelling and great drama, and it's kind of overshadowed by its frame. Yeah, I have that line in my notes as well, that Beauty and the Beast are in the eye of the beholder, because it was just so heavy-handedly cheesetastic, um, which, you know, I didn't dislike it. It just, it kind of made me laugh. But but you're absolutely right. I remembered this episode for its structure, not for its content. Like, I had kind of rough memories, and, you know, this is me we're talking about, terrible memory, but I still kind of remembered the, the funny bits and pieces, you know, where you have uh, Corwin talking about how pleasant an atmosphere it is with Ivanova in the back. While he nervously or, looks back to her, yes, <laughs> no, or just or the 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 scene the with her with and en- perky and energetic Ivana, Ivanova, yeah, they, Ivanova, her, yes, he couldn't get her name right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, <gasps> so those are the those are the pieces that I remember, and yeah, once again, we've got some some heavy heavy stuff going on in the background and it's actually it's not in the background it just felt like it was because the the foreground is is so shiny newsy. Let's go to the foreground. Let's go to uh, the the main issues of this story, which the Narn Centauri conflict is continuing to get worse. And now the conflict is at B5's doorstep, literally. And the biggest change for me in this episode, it wasn't that long ago that we had uh, Londo and Garibaldi having one chemically inoffensive drink in the Zocalo, you know, trying to get a little bit of normality while they still could, a little bit of collegiality. Today, Londo is a proper bastard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, the, and he threatens Babylon 5. This is the first time that Londo has actually threatened Babylon 5. 
And this is a tough, tough moment um, for the station and for the vision of creating the piece that uh, Sheridan talks about at the end. This is Londo as a heavy. Mm-hmm. And as a, a smarmy heavy. He's really, yeah. and I mean, it's not just because we are seeing this through the, the lens of a camera and that it's being packaged for, for television in nice little sound bites. And that, he's, and, that he's, uh, and that he's playing to the camera for that bit, too. Blatantly, mm-hmm. it's like the grease is dripping off him. No, and there's there's no way to there's no way to sugarcoat this. He is just he's just awful. So it's it just I don't know if it comes through even stronger for me just simply because you know I anytime I look at something that's news created, I always you know wonder what is the bias of the person creating this? What what angle are they trying to take it from? And and here I didn't see anything particularly strong except for just everything is incredibly earth centric from mm-hmm. from the way that that Kim Zimmer says many others actually live and work here as if that's something amazing right. um but uh, i i feel like londo is just in your face almost mustache twirling villain mhm and to contrast we've got jakar you know doing his part but he comes across as somebody who is just fighting desperately for his people trying to salvage things trying to um, trying to do his best for his people. And we get, we've seen tiny bits and pieces of him before being philosophical. It really comes out here. It's like, yeah. And I'll, and I was wondering how much of that on both sides, as far as talking to the, as far as playing to the cameras, well, how much either of them are, or both of them are just playing to the cameras in this respect. Uh, Londo yeah. clearly is uh, trying to, score some points with the folks at home at Earth uh, to get them supportive of the Centauri and to uh, yeah. turn them against the Narn. And Jakar, who has, you know, through much of the series, has been, uh, particularly in the first season, has been a bit more of a heavy and a bit more of a problem figure, um, is now only too quick to portray the Narn as an oppressed culture, a continually oppressed culture, forgetting the fact that they went through an expansionistic phase of their own. Yeah, but he still manages to come off as more genuine than Londo does, somehow. Mm-hmm. I think part of it is is actually in the staging of where he is interviewed. Londo has clearly said, yes, please come talk to me, because he's sitting down, they've got a stable mm-hmm. camera, um, he's being interviewed properly, whereas Jakar is, is most of the time uh, being caught as he's walking along, and mm-hmm. he just he seems to not care quite so much about what the reaction is going to be, which does make him feel more genuine, because mm-hmm. it seems like he's not playing to the camera so much, and he, yeah, I think yep. he comes off better better than anybody else in the entire episode. I think he's just, he seems eloquent and passionate, and, and that works. Yeah, he's got bigger things to do than, than mess with this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other bit I'd like to call out is one expertly directed and performed and written scene is the council chamber scene. That is mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. handheld, one continuous shot, very well performed by every actor in the room. And that is the, case, that is the point when the wheels feel like they're about to come off of the Babylon project. They are screaming at each other. Jakar's identified uh, the, um, that the ships were carrying weapons of mass destruction. Londo says, it's our right to do this. You can't stop us. Sheridan at one point turns his ire towards Londo and then turns his ire back towards Jakar when he's trying to uh, salvage. He's trying to get everybody to behave, basically. And the raw hostility in that room is amazing. Yeah, it's a very, very, very good scene. It you know got, cuts right to the heart of um, of the episode and Babylon Five's mission and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's kind of it's it's kind of sad and painful to watch because I, you just feel like everything that they've been working towards is is falling apart right in front of them. And I agree that the direction is excellent. The the handheld camera really works to give you that sort of sense of just frenetic. Oh my god! Oh my god! You get it all the way through that scene. Yeah. And in that scene, there is one figure who is who seems a little out of place, who seems a little lost, and she seems a little lost throughout the entire episode, and that's Delin. Mm-hmm. Poor yeah, Delin. I wondered. Yes, poor Delin. 
I, I wondered her, I mean, yes, we've said that she has been beaten down um, and seems weak in even previous episodes. But here it just seems like it seems like each episode she's getting lower and lower. And when she was being interviewed and suddenly gets to the point where she's almost crying, a wonderful performance, by the way, on, on Mira Furlan's part. That was that was great. I mean, she had me almost weepy as well. Uh, but that's not the kind of thing that I would have ever expected to see from a Minbari. So I, there's a little bit of me that, that kind of wonders, is this also a part of the transformation? I mean, I am a human being and I know how brain chemistry can affect me and hormones and stuff. And, and maybe maybe there's just this soup going on inside of her bloodstream that is actually making her more likely to to feel lost. So it's, you know, compounded by that. I think there's that. And I also think there's the fact that Zimmer's journalist was clearly hoping oh. to trap her in, in this yep. way. And Delenn has somewhat gotten used to dealing with the blowback from the Mimbari. Uh, she has not had the opportunity to adjust to the blowback from the humans. There's that one scene in Gropos where the guy sort of, you know, starts getting close to her because, you know, you don't look like any Mimbari I know. That's really the only taste she's had. The other humans she's interacting with on a day-to-day basis support her. They, they, they've accepted her. And now she's getting it thrown in her face by this uh, reporter um, claiming that, you know, oh, the entire human race, what are they going to think of somebody? How dare you appropriate, you know, our appearance or whatever? And it, it totally hits her out of left field. Yeah. And I've got to, I've got to believe that whatever the Mimbari media is like, it's probably a lot more NPR than Fox News. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and she is used to being dealt with with a certain amount of respect. And there is, Mimbari culture is so formal and so polite. And that's not how, that's now not how Earth journalists work in the 21st century or the 23rd. I, I think she was expecting to be treated uh, just a little better, and mm-hmm. you can't expect that. Um, and I'd also like to take uh, take a line from uh, JMS uh, from his online communications with fans at the time that's been reproduced at the Lurker's Guide to Babylon 5 at midwinter.com slash lurk, an important uh, source for this podcast. JMS answering, um, responding to another fan who was at talking about how how weak Delin appeared in this episode. JMS says, I don't quite think she really understood what was required of her and what would happen. I think she believed it would go somewhat other than it has, which has given her pause. She's rattled, alone, and realizing the magnitude of what is before her and her choice to undergo the chrysalis. So, I and I I do think that that's sort of consistently portrayed in Delenn as we've seen throughout this uh, second uh, season, all the way back from that first early episode where uh, she was expecting to be kowtowed to by uh, another Minbari who just blatantly said, "We're not sure what you are anymore," and it's just gotten mm-hmm. steadily worse. Um, she's lost a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. Now, has she lost so much confidence that? she looks irredeemably broken in this episode. Well, no, I mean, you know, the council chamber episode, she is very quick to uh, step in as as one of the leaders of the, of the Babylon five council. Um, And whenever, whenever it is, whether it's before or after um, that first interview, if it's after, then she's managed to compose herself enough to answer the question of, is it worth it? And she, you know, goes and talks about her community spiel. So um, I don't think it, I don't think she's broken beyond repair at all. But yeah, that's same, severely same bruised. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah. I mean, every episode I keep thinking, oh, this is, this is Delenn at, at the Nadir. And, you know, it's, it's going to, there's going to be a turning point. It's going to get better. And then it doesn't come. And then she's lower. So I, I keep thinking, you know, it'll, it'll come. But right now it still hasn't. But I agree with Shannon that the, uh, her she collected herself and was able to answer that question but again it could have been recorded before she lost her her stuff on camera so who knows yeah um this might be a good point for uh delincheck as far as uh, steven's perspective since this is the first time he's seen babylon 5 um he didn't actually 
he didn't say anything about Dolan in this one. So I think he was I think he was more focused, like we all were in, in memory, at least on the structure of it mm-hmm. and the way that it the way that it presented everything uh, more than more than the story itself, especially especially being the kind of television viewer he is. That is the kind of thing that he's going to, to notice more. I'm always going to focus on the characters. He's always going to focus on the, the logs and bricks and bits and pieces that put that make the show what it is. <laughs> right. Now, Shannon just mentioned uh, Delenn's statement at the end of the episode about humans having a unique knack for building diverse communities. And I want to ask, Erica, you've you've uh, expressed at different points during this rewatch, you know, a little bit of discomfort with sort of um, human exceptionalism in Babylon Mm -hmm. 5. And I'm curious if both of you think that based on what we've seen so far in the show. Uh, do humans seem really? Do humans really seem that special about building diverse communities more so than the Mimbari or Narn or Centauri or whatever? Um, or was Delenn finally playing to the cameras a little bit to make humans feel better about themselves or feel like a Mimbari was saying nice things to them? Or is this simply the hand of the author, J. Michael Straczynski, uh, you know, sort of pontificating a little bit about? who humans are or who humans should be. I think it's both actually. I think, I think because we don't see the homeworlds of these other, these other characters, um, you know, we have the alien sector of Babylon five, but mostly, mostly what we are seeing is, is the, them interacting with the humans on the station or at least in the context of Babylon five. So we don't really know if other species are, are having the same kind of diverse community building thing. And I mean, from from what we can understand, Earth is pretty far behind a lot of these other races when it comes to technology, and they certainly haven't been a spacefaring race nearly as long as, as most of these others. And yet, they're at the head of Babylon 5, and, you know, the, the council chambers, you know, Earth is, is at the big table. So I think that there has to be something in this in-world universe, some reason that the other races are are looking to Earth and, and willing to willing to work with Earth on the, on these particular terms. So if the author is telling us that that, that is what it is, that this is what makes uh, the Earthlings special, then I guess then I guess that that's that is what I will believe because that's what it, that's what I'm being told. But I don't think there's any way for for them to quite show us because it's it's hard to prove a negative. You know, it's hard to show that these other races don't have those ca- characteristics. So this that particular speech didn't necessarily strike me as Earth essentialism as much as some of the other ones did, simply because it's it's more a a description of the way things work in that world. And I have to just take it at face value because that's the only information I currently have. Yeah, uh, pretty much the same thing. I think the cons- the fact that that's been mentioned consistently a few times now, at least from the Mimbari point of view, that, you know, this is, you know, something that makes humans special is that they that they do make these communities and they are diverse communities and they um, they get to know all kinds of others, whatever the other may be. Um, I think it's leading somewhere at this point, but we don't know where yet. I guess. I, You know, I feel a little more cynical these days than I did back in the 90s when I was watching this uh, for the first time. So, you know, I'd really like to believe that humans are better at uh, forming diverse yeah. communities than we seem to be demonstrating um, in 2015. Yeah. But Well, there's that, yeah. Yeah. Um, a few side notes uh, that uh, of things that come up in this episode. Uh, in a ca- in a passing reference, we find out that uh, Senator Hidoshi, who was Sinclair's essentially his boss um, on the Senate Oversight Committee, no longer in office. That's a little ominous, I guess. Hidoshi seemed to be a good guy who warned Sinclair that he'd made some powerful enemies and uh Sinclair is gone and so is Hidoshi and I've got to assume that if uh if uh, Senator Quantrell is Hidoshi's replacement uh <laughs> holding the purse strings for Babylon 5 that's probably a bad sign doesn't look good no no he's from Texas I I just got this feeling um <laughs> <laughs> with, with, I got the same impression. <laughs> with yep. apologies to our Texans listeners. Um, <sighs> love Austin, guys. Love Austin. Um, keep Austin weird, yo. Um, the, the Narn appear to be losing this war. 
that seems to be fairly evident, despite uh, Jakar's protestation that that's just Centauri propaganda. It's not mm-hmm. looking good for the Narn. I wonder why. Yeah. Uh, Del Vientos uh, from By Any Means Necessary is back. And that was, Yay. I thought that, that was pretty good. I liked seeing him there. Um, I liked him having the obligatory, hey, I got to make this pension uh, regular yeah. guy uh, thing at the end. But the fact that he is not just this mystery guy who shows up as being important you know he's not like he, he's not like the maintenance keffer he's actually somebody we've got mm-hmm. an experience with it that it, it was good to see that character back i thought Agreed. yeah i agree i was i was surprised to see him like oh hey check that out i remember that guy mm-hmm. and our guy in cnc our ops guy is this the time when he finally got a name david corwin has he been so. has, has he been given that name before I don't think he was given the name before, but I did notice that in the credits, uh, Joshua Cox, who's the actor that plays him, was still listed as tech number one in the credits. So despite <laughs> the fact that he has a name on screen, he doesn't have a name on screen. They didn't catch that catch up that <laughs> poor. <yet. laughs> but no, poor, poor guy. But this may have been the scene that gives him a job because it's a great it's a great scene. He's just got the one scene in the whole thing, but he plays it perfectly. It is so lovely. It really is. And I mean, I'm, I uh, I also love Joshua Cox. He was on a life, I think it was a Lifetime show called Strong Medicine. So <laughs> I have very, very strong feelings towards him. So I just love him so much. He, you know, he's never on screen very much. But even even before he got his hair cut and started to look like a, you know, like a normal military officer, like mm-hmm. he does now, I was I was watching him very closely. Mm-hmm. And speaking of comedy, how about that Psycor commercial? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good God. <laughs> it was that was hilarious and perfect. And yeah, I, I liked it very much. And Stephen did make us uh, freeze frame and go back frame by frame so you could see what it said. Of course. It's like, That's why they did it. Do, doing its job. Yep, it worked. Exactly. Although this time I, I, I don't know what it stuck in my head all of a sudden that that poor child just looked he was dressed exactly like Wesley Crusher in season one. Just awful sweater. <laughs> and that and I could not shake that out of my mind. <laughs> just 90s fashion for kids i guess is, is what we had oh, 90s fake future fashion for exactly. kids is really there what it was. was yeah yeah well any closing thoughts on and now for a word before we uh go through the jump gate and uh pick it apart for uh spoiler fodder I actually had one other um, sort of like drab of a little bit of Earth information. I thought that that was one thing that this episode did very well was give us an idea of what the what the feelings are about everything back on Earth, because this was very much told, as I said before, from an Earth centric Earth centric point of view, you know, many others actually live and work here. I just keep coming back to that line Mm -hmm. because it just made me shake my head. But also we just get also subtle dribs and drabs of other information. Like we have this newly formed office of public morale. Um, I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound very good. So just all that kind little things here and there just gave uh, a bit of a more of a depth to the way that earth fits into the entire cosmos. Yeah, similarly, the, the Ministry for Public Information, there's all these Orwellian yes. things being tossed in um, that, you know, the Psycor commercial just sort of blended into that perfectly. Um, there's also, I loved the bits where the senator um, grossly overestimates Earth's military strength for the camera, and <laughs> Sheridan hasn't been informed that he's supposed to lie, and he says flat out, you know, we'd get flattened again. You know, basically, Sheridan knows, as most of the military know, Earth lost the earth mimbari war the the mimbari bay have stopped fighting and surrendered quotes air quotes Mm -hmm. but earth was going to lose and they knew it and they still have that mindset in in there you know sheridan goes on for several moments about you know how we get you know flattened again uh, we would totally lose again and you know the the reporter comes up but but the mimbari surrendered and it's like okay technically yeah but (laughs) um so getting that back and forth from the different factions of how, how things are being seen and how things are being presented in the media uh, was really fascinating. And I just want to give a quick shout out to Dr. Franklin, who just he was just PO'd throughout this whole episode. And I think that he did it very well. So yay for him. Yeah, he did it well. But can I ask sort of I didn't get the point of his his story 
You know, it's like it didn't it seemed to be totally out of left field for him to just sort of talk about, you know, this experience of witnessing a friend of his um, getting trapped in an airlock and sucked out into space. I mean, yes, he he performed it well. It was, you know, he was very um, captivating as he explained it. I just couldn't figure out how that fit into the rest of the story at all. Personally. It struck me as just sensationalist. Um, I mean, yeah, it didn't. I don't think it moved the narrative forward all that much. But from from a perspective of somebody who is producing a news show to show on Earth about what life is like out in the coldness of space, that seems like exactly the kind of per- personal anecdote that they would want to include. Um, just you know, for to get the the clicks and to get the views back on home. Yeah. Um- the Lurker's Guide, uh, uncharacteristically, has a full transcript of this episode um, instead of a synopsis because it's so it's so different. And if you go back and if you look at uh, that entire monologue of Franklin's, it follows on um, Sheridan and other characters talking about how big uh, and heavy a job Babylon 5 is. And then the first line that Stephen Franklin gives is, you know what the folks back home don't understand, the ones who's never left Earth, is just how dangerous space can be. Uh, the re- everyday reality of living your days and nights in a big tin can surrounded by vacuum. So that's the point behind the story. But I think that the story goes so long that you lose the point. Um, Mm -hmm. It feels out of place. Mm -hmm. It also feels suspiciously like either the author of the episode or we could be charitable and say the editors of the 36 Hours documentary felt that the episode was running a little short and they needed to pad it a bit. (laughs) Padding. Yep. Possibly. Yeah. I love this episode. I don't think it has aged well in terms of a portrayal of the news media, either as it was then or as it would be in the 23rd century. Uh, Yay for hypertext links at the bottom of a video story. (laughs) But aside from that, it is a canny um, look at the Babylon 5 universe, and it uses a different structure to help us learn more about it. So uh, I, I, I like it. It's, it's, yeah, it's a keeper. It's a keeper. I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't say I love it, but I would say that I solidly like it. And the, the other, the only other thing that Stephen pointed out uh, besides liking the Psychor hidden message was the, um, that he thought that this episode might have been done mostly as a, a B unit episode, uh, possibly double banked with other things that were being mm-hmm. recorded at the same time. Uh, you know, you, so you just slap in Kim Zimmer with whoever else is free while recording another episode. He said it sort of had that flavor. And I agree. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's an experiment that overall is successful in both um, trying to show the uh, Earth viewpoint compared to the normal view we see from Babylon 5 uh, for sort of recapping and bringing people on board who maybe have not seen the show before, have just started watching like an episode or two ago. So, hey, here's what this show is all about. Um, Overall, I think it it is a success. All right, with that, it's time to talk about what we do in two weeks' time when we come back to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. We watch another episode, and that is going to be a bit of a deviation. As you know, we're using the Lurker's Guide Master List, which takes um, all of the episodes that uh, were produced and puts them in the order that was originally intended uh, by uh, J. Michael Straczynski ignoring production considerations that came up. And in this case, because of production considerations, uh, the the next two episodes were aired out of order. So put this DVD away and get mm-hmm. the next DVD because the next episode is Knives, written by Larry Dottilio. And that will be yours, Erica. Woo, I bet you. I guess. I, Once again, I remember nothing about it from the <laughs> <laughs> I was going thing. I was going to tease you about that, but uh, you have you, you you have relieved that burden of me. Yep. All right. Knives is coming up next time. As always, we are at B5 Audio Guide on Twitter and Tumblr. Our episodes are at b5audioguide.com, as are our chat threads in spoiler and spoiler-free varieties. If you want to stay spoiler-free for future episodes of Babylon 5, hi thee to the spoiler-free comment threads 
at b5audioguide.com. Come back to us on our next podcast. And the rest of you, follow us. There's a jump gate right there. And our jump engines are fully online. No last-minute explosions here. This was just safe transit for all of us. Uh, okay. <laughs> Spoilers. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about uh, is the media thing uh, in Babylon 5 and how uh, sort of the media coverage of B5 and how the media is used by Earth Dome is a continuing thing in the background uh, for these five uh, years. And it's interesting to see where ISN is now compared to where it was uh, last season. Last season, we had our blonde, curly-haired um, ingenue reporter who came in for a couple of episodes. Um, she seemed to not have much of an agenda. I'm not sure how much of an agenda Kim Zimmer's character had, but she was definitely more skeptical of uh, Babylon 5. And she definitely worked in a few talking points about how much more popular uh, President Clark is and things like that. Um, in the future, ISN is going to play an, ev uh, uh, an even more unsettling and even sinister role. And I was wondering how many of those uh, sorts of things you noticed as you were watching this episode. I actually had gotten this one mixed up in my head a little bit with the uh, with the future one where everything is just, you know, it's it's clearly a smear campaign against Babylon 5 and and I was expecting that would be the appropriately named the illusion of truth in fourth season. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I I was expecting more of that, so I I ended up finding uh, Kim Zimmer uh, much more fair and balanced than I remembered uh, or than I expected to see her be. So I it, it still felt very Earth-centric, but it, I knew it wasn't what is yet to come. So I'm still kind of looking forward to that episode because that <laughs> it, it's another one that's like, oh, yeah, I can get behind this. The the the, the faking of, of truth by, you know, video editing means, which, you know, it's a thing I was taught to do. But I know to use my powers for good, not evil. <laughs> yeah, this... Um yeah, it's definitely, I think it shows the direction things are headed in, but um, certainly it's not as bad as it's going to get. I like how we get this sort of kind of icky, but not actively hostile or manipulative look at ISN. And then in the middle of next season, when uh, in Severed Dreams, when the... Um, when Earth Dome moves against ISN, shuts it, shuts it down, and in the middle of the in the middle of the broadcast, uh, the uh, anchor and the producer say, "You know, there's stuff that we haven't been able to tell you, but you need to know this." And you know, and they get taken down. And then uh, a few episodes later, we get uh, smiling. We there were there were minor problems, but we're back. Um, <laughs> stuff, you know. And then even it, later on, you get um, you know, when the poor ISN reporters are actually let out and and able mm -hmm. to report on what had happened to them. That I just I found that very very touching. Yeah. So I I appreciate the the fact that we get an actual full sort of arc when it comes to the news uh, mm -hmm. on Earth in Babylon Five. So it's a it's another thumbs up for me. Yeah. This yeah. Is that the seeds are being planted. We, we get the, the Earth's version of uh, the Mars issue. We've, we've already seen from several other views um, in the last season and a half that um, there's, you know, an independent Mars movement that they are working. There's, yes, there's a terrorist fringe, but there's also people working very hard trying to peacefully create um, what uh, their, their goal of an independent Mars. And we get, again... Zimmer's uh, character's throwaway of um, Cynthia Torkman of the the terrorists on Mars that the the Earth government is succeeding um, in in putting them down. Uh, we get you know the the popularity numbers of Clark and there's no telling whether they're real. We have no background, no context to to show that uh, what she's saying is true or not. And we've got Quantrell's the the senator, you know, politicking for the camera as best he can. And comes off, you know, completely insincere. And I don't know where I was going with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, the other thing that I w wanted to highlight, and I think that this is really good, really important. Mass drivers and weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We are not far off from, from Jakar's homeworld being bombed into the Stone Age. 
And the weapons that are going to do it, or at least some of them, are here and now. Mm-hmm. And they are a background plot point that drives this episode and drives the carnage that happens um, when the uh, warships fire on each other. And again, when you're when you're putting together a five year arc, no matter what hiccups and bumps may happen along the way, when you have this story largely in your head, you can seed these kinds of things. And I think it is really important and effective that. The presence of weapons of mass destruction is something that is brought to light here before it comes out of nowhere um, at the end of this season. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's another skillful job of, of planting something early on that comes up later. And, you know, from an in-story perspective, it, it also makes me wonder, because these weapons were confiscated because you know earth did not kowtow to to the centauri so it makes me wonder if if we would have had the the mass drivers you know bombing them into the stone age happen even sooner if earth hadn't stepped in and mm-hmm. uh, you know did did we did Babylon five just buy planet Delayed the planet inevitable. home planet of the narn a little bit you know a few more weeks or something like that oh it's just such a right. sad thing mm-hmm. but this is also additional culpability for londo in what happens because he is mm-hmm. he, he is aware of what's going on. He defends what's going on. He calls in a warship to uh, blockade to Babylon Five and try to keep that keep that going on. He's not just passively sitting in the window, mournfully looking at what Lord Rifa has done. Nope. He really does have this episode. Really demonstrates that Londo has blood on his hands. Mm-hmm. Yep. Indeed. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's kind of a lot of foreshadowing here, um, if if you look at it. There's, you know, the fact that, you know, the Narns, you know, sort of win this fight, so to speak. They expose the Centauri plot, but, you know, they, they lose as well because they ultimately can't stop it. Um, you know, they, their own ship comes in, uh, destroys the Centauri ship, um, but then winds up getting destroyed as well because it's so damaged that it can't survive the jump. Um, that kind of foreshadows the way the Narn homeworld um, war goes on, that they, they lose, they're occupied, and it's not until, you know, Jakar is able to strike his bargain with Londo, um, you know, seasons down the line, that uh, he is able to finally get rid of, they're able to get rid of the Centauri again. Um, so it's like they're, they're, they're winning in one level, and, you know, on the more practical level, they keep losing. Narn, it appears, can only survive out of tenacity and through wars of attrition. Uh, mm-hmm. That's how they kicked the Centauri mm-hmm. off the first time around, uh, and that's how they'll do it again. Yeah. This episode of, not the audio guide to Babylon 5, but this episode of 36 Hours on Babylon 5 was sponsored by Interplanetary Expeditions, <laughs> previously seen in... Infection? Yes. I was just going to say, do you think we could get them to sponsor us? I'd be all right with that. <laughs> I could go for that. I could go for that, except I'm not sure about uh, I'm not sure about the moral quandaries we might find ourselves in as a result. Mm, um, that's true. I was just thinking of the cold, hard cash. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Max Eilerson, is that you? Um, and that was our first Crusade reference in a very, very long time. Um <laughs> Uh, but we're also just a couple episodes away from having Anna Sheridan's backstory revealed as having been on an interplanetary expeditions trip to Zahadum. So nice to get that little uh, reference worked in again for those who are paying attention or for those who are going to be subliminally affected down the line. <laughs> and uh, finally, I will note that uh, Jakar's very moving and affecting story of his father will be revisited uh, in a dream uh, in Dust to Dust when um, Jakar, when um, Kosh visits him in the visage of his father. And that is a, it's, it's nice to have that kind of backstory working for us again. Yes, as opposed to a family member just being left behind with no mention again. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And did we, am I crazy or did we actually get Kosh's full name? It's like she, yes, we did. Kosh yes. Naranik or something like that. Kosh, Kosh Naranik. 
Uh, and I do believe that that's the first time that uh, that full name has ever been said on um, on the show. May have been the last. Is it ever said again? Yeah. Because I didn't even remember that that was a thing. Me either. I don't remember. I don't I, remember. I don't think. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, a couple more things that jumped out at me for this half of the podcast. Um, again, talking about f- foreshadowing and, and predicting the future. Um, it struck me when um, I believe it was uh, at one point uh, during Garibaldi's interviews um, talking about, you know, I, I want this place to I want to make a difference. I want this place to make a difference. Um, I want, you know, what we do here to mean something. And Valbalon 5 eventually becomes the center and the stronghold for the Alliance's war against the shadows. So it, it does wind up going on to make that difference that he was hoping for. Not only that, but the seat of uh, the future, um, the future uh, uni- uh, galactic government. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, Impressive. I also think that um, I don't know at all where or when the in the beginning movie started being planned or started happening. But um, Delenn's breakdown in front of the journalist makes a whole lot more sense when you know the events of in the beginning. The fact that it was her vote made in anger and grief that started the Earth Mimbari War and led to those quarter of a million humans being killed, um, getting thrown mm-hmm. in her face now. Um, the context um, makes a whole lot more sense when you've got more of it. True. Yep. Yeah, I hadn't yep. even thought of that, but mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Erica, any uh, spoilery thoughts? No, I think we I think we hit on everything that I noticed. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, it's pretty. It's 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 meaty and it feeds a lot of stuff for the future. Um, yeah, I think you know. Again, I, I touched on this uh, in the pre-spoiler section, but the fact that this is where the the philosophical side, the the Jakar that sees the big picture, is really starting to show up here in this episode. Um, I think in looking beyond um, just Narn and Centauri, but the fact that you know, if it's not just us, it's going to be the whole galaxy, um, everything's going to fall apart if we can't figure out how to solve this um, soon, one way or the other. Um, the fact that he cites Earth history, showing, you know, just how just how informed he is about these other cultures, uh, yeah. that, that this kind of really shows here. Yeah, I'm still a little cynical about uh, Jakar at this point. Uh, not that he's not right, but I, I think he is as much playing the game as he is genuinely trying to protect his people. It's not until dust to dust when um, Kosh sort of gets into his mind that he really commits to this uh, broader, to borrow a line for, (laughs) to borrow a line from another JMS property uh, since eight, I am also a we. Um, (laughs) He is thinking about the Narn first and only, and it's not until dust to dust when he uh, broadens his perspective. Yeah, I I think it's building, though. The other thing that struck me, um, of course, was all throughout that Psycor commercial, we're everywhere. And, of course, they're going to be everywhere. They're behind the Clark conspiracy. They are working with the shadows, are going to be working with the shadows, and it's going to turn into the season five telepath war by the time all is said and done. And that was just all running through my mind during that commercial. Yeah, I laughed out loud. <laughs> all right, I think we're done. I think we're done with uh, documentaries for a couple of seasons, which means a couple of mm-hmm. years at our current pace of uh, releasing episodes. <laughs> um, Erica, the baton is yours for Knives in Two Weeks. All right. Look forward to talking about that one. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you for being a part of this fantastic fandom, and I'm going to go and I'm going to get fitted for a Babylon 5 uniform jacket tomorrow. So <laughs> I will. I, uh, we will talk to you soon. Until then, this is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. You have been listening to the audio guide to the Babylon 5. Trust the audio guide. Recording.
Oh, that's nice. Stephen accidentally forgot to change the gain when he recorded Radio Free Skyro this morning. So after you listen to the next one, he may be a little bit loud. <laughs> he could fix that, you know. Yeah, he yeah he may, but he also, he, he, being being sick, um, he wasn't able to talk as loud as usual, so he's thinking it might actually be a wash. <laughs> uh, I heard that hockey feels went well, at least according to Rachel's tweet. Yep, Stephen was was very excited about it, so I'm I'm very thrilled. I'm looking forward to that one. All right, contemplative silence in three, two, recording. <laughs> That's me. That's me applauding. <laughs> oh my! Sorry, Sorry well, the, lutz, the lutz just came over me. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Lutz, I know you don't listen to this podcast, but that was for you. <laughs> <laughs>